Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today, we have a special guest, entrepreneur and author of the Business of Sharing book, Alex Stephanie. He's also on the board of Just Park and SpaceHive, and we'll learn a little bit more about what he did in those companies, what he does in those companies, but also a lot about his book and the things that made his book possible. So let's start off the way that we usually start off, Alex, which is sharing a little bit about kind of what you did in college, and then what was your first job in college? Because I know that in some ways, part of the story that you want to tell is one about not necessarily following other people's advice about what you should be doing. Sure. So I studied English language and literature at Oxford University, and I didn't have any massive, well-thought-out game plan at that point. I just really enjoyed stories, to be honest. Um, I enjoyed telling stories and reading stories, and I didn't see how that would fit into anything in, in the future. If, if anything, I thought it was kind of like a bit of a bit of a cul-de-sac. Uh, so I did that for three years, um, and then I again, didn't know what the heck to do with my life. So I decided to be a corporate lawyer. That sounded vaguely sensible. And then I went into management consulting, which again, seemed vaguely sensible. But neither of those things were me. I was kind of, uh, I guess, a bit of a fish out of water in those organizations. Or to use another kind of animalistic metaphor, I felt like a cat whose fur was sort of being stroked in, in the wrong direction. And with the benefit of hindsight, maybe I should have listen to that earlier urge around storytelling because stories and narratives, those are the things that excited me. And actually, I think those are the things that still excite me to this day working, you know, in the context of technology and startups, because at its root, you know, most technology businesses start as a story about how the world can be different and better if something exists. Yeah. And there must have been a very difficult decision then to like go from what seemed like the most obvious or most sensical path of, you know, working in, in a corporate environment to then moving on to what eventually became Just Park. But maybe you can share us a little bit kind of the soul searching that you went through and then the ultimate decision that you made when you made that transition. To be honest, it, it wasn't a difficult decision at all because uh, it was almost like the decision was made for me because it was so not me to be in these organizations. Um, I didn't enjoy it. Um, I frankly sucked in these kinds of jobs. Um, I used to kind of go through life and just find stuff like academic work relatively straightforward. Then I would kind of do this sort of super detail oriented legal work. And I'd realize that, you know, I sucked compared to many other people. So for me, like the decision was kind of made for me in many ways. The difficult bit was thinking, you know, if I don't do this, then what do I do with my life? Um, as I said, I was interested in stories, but it was pretty obvious that I'd never be able to make my living as a writer. Mm. Um, so I mean, that was the hard thing. And at that time, uh, when I left corporate law and when I ultimately left consulting, it was in the aftermath of the credit crunch. And, you know, no one was hiring. People were on shutdown. People were saying, like, you're crazy to be leaving these safe havens. You need to get back into law, get back into consulting, do the right thing. And the technology space was just, you know, the ecosystem was way less mature um, than it was, um, you know, than it is today. Um, and going further back when I left university in 2004, like, it was extremely small, you know, you, you know, you were very involved with it. Some, yeah. some other of the kind of the, you know, the big names in the UK tech scene were involved with it, but like, it was very small. Like Google had like a tiny office, right? Well, I don't know, 10 people or something yeah. like that in 2004, there was open coffee and that kind of thing. But you know, now there's, as you know, there's just countless events going on, you know, every single night. Yeah. And walk me through those early conversations with now the since departed Alex He's now left that organization. What were those early conversations like with, with other people that you were in touch with to start 
eventually looking for this role in in a company? I think people were worried was was the first thing because I didn't have many great ideas. It was a kind of big step into the unknown. Um, so I was getting advice um, from people about what I should be doing, but at the same time, I was conscious that the advice that I'd taken hitherto kind of hadn't got me in the right place. Mm. Now, I'd spoken to my friends and my family and all these people love me and want the best for me, but I'd ended up in jobs that I just didn't feel were me at all. I didn't feel I was contributing in a meaningful, meaningful way to the world. Um, so, you know, I think it was uh, learning how to kind of ignore some of that advice. Mm. Um, but then also everything changed when I got my first smartphone. So that arrived in, let me think, um, beginning of 2011. Mm-hmm. And I got it really, really late. I was on the bandwagon really late because I wasn't a tech geek. And I was frankly pretty broke mm-hmm. after leaving these well-paid jobs. Mm-hmm. But I remember getting my first uh, Samsung uh, Galaxy One, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And you probably know the scene in Pulp Fiction where uh, the John Travolta character opens the suitcase and his face is illuminated and uh, Samuel L. Jackson says, we good? And uh, John Travolta says, yeah, we good. It was kind of like that when I turned on this smartphone and my face lit up and I realized, wow, this is going to change everything about the way we access goods and services. And this is what I want to do with my career. Excellent. So, you know, what, what happened from there? Like, what, what, what was the first action you took? I, f- I feel like... I feel like that it's really, you're gripping. This is very gripping there. <laughs> okay, so. you're right. Okay. It's possibly not as gripping as Pulp Fiction, but I'll do my best. Yeah. So after that, it was about, you know, how the heck do I get into technology? I don't yeah. really know people that work in tech and, you know, I kind of know what a startup is, but I don't know anything about computer code or yeah. product and apps and things. Like that. I just know that this stuff is super exciting. Yeah. So it was really about me just begging introductions and meetings mm-hmm. and coffees and, uh, that kind of reaffirmed that I wanted to work in tech because I'd been doing similar things in other sectors. And, you know, in many more traditional sectors, the initial response, kind of the default position is like, who the F are you? Why is this worth my time? Mm. I'm busy. Yeah. Um, whereas what I found in tech was that people were really you know, honest and open and prepared to help me. And some of these people, you know, I'm still friendly with and talking to to this day, um, and, you know, I owe these people so much, but that kind of default response of positivity, openness, sure, I'm freaking busy, but I can carve out 20 minutes to grab a quick coffee with you. Like, for me, that just affirmed that the sort of people working in tech have a kind of openness that, you know, I really need to be surrounded by. So I feel like you're leading up to like the one meeting that changed everything. What was it? <laughs> uh, so as well as these coffees and that kind of thing, and, you know, like spamming, spamming the crap out of everyone, yeah. you know, if you check your LinkedIn cards, I wouldn't be surprised if you go back to 2011, you'll find some <laughs> like, you know, spamming messages from me. You know, apart from that, I um, was uh, going to loads of events and uh, I was kind of networking like crazy, trying to go to at least three of these things um, every week. And uh, one evening, I, it was a Friday night. I remember really, really clearly there was an event called Launch 48, which you know. Um, And for those of you listening that don't know what this event it does, it is super cool. It happens at uh, UCL and some other uh, other venues around London, but also internationally now. And the premise is very basic. You get together in a room, you form teams, and you start businesses and go as far as you possibly can with these businesses over a 48-hour period. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to this thing because it sounded pretty intense, right? I was absolutely knackered. I'd been having job interviews. Like I had something ridiculous, like 16 job interviews that week. And it was, 
you know, 7.30 on a Friday night, I literally felt like I could just shut my eyes and fall asleep. Yeah. Do I want to stay up all weekend working? Mm. But I decided just to go and push myself and never know what will happen. So I went to this event and I had a great time and I met some great people that, again, I'm still in touch with. And one of the guys that I met was an angel investor in a business called Park at My House. Yeah. And that was the kind of genesis business of what became Just Park, which was the business that I ran as uh, CEO for three years. Mm. And when you had that conversation uh, and this idea of, you know, the sharing economy uh, was still not really there yet. I mean, it was something that was maybe we, we had an investment called Rentline Online and, you know, it was a little bit ahead of its day in that in that regard. What was your reaction? Was it, you know, this is this is so compelling that and I'm going to take a big, deep uh, dive into it. Did you offer to help and then just got sucked into it? How did that relationship deepen? How did you mitigate the sort of anxiety around, is this the right time? Is this the right idea? How did you do that? Because I know a lot of people that might be listening to this might be at that sort of decision point as well on future-facing technologies, but perhaps a bit too early or is it to not? And how do I interface with the the, the people who are already in the organization? How do I yeah. validate myself to them, et cetera? So on the sharing economy point, I mean, I hadn't even heard of the term, you know, I did, actually did a Google trend search for it the other day. And it's this kind of sharing economy is this sort of fairly flat line until 2012. And then it just sort of shoots up as the New York Times and the Guardian and all these kinds of papers started covering it. And then it you know, became a really mainstream term since then. And so um, when I joined this business, um, this kind of much cooler than me friend was like, hey, man, what's it like working for a sharing economy startup? I was like, what? You know, what, what do you mean sharing economy? I, I don't know what that means, but it's... Uh, it's a business that allows people to rent out their driveways and for people to park there. It's a kind of, if anything, it's like a real estate business. It's no, it's this new thing called the sharing economy. And you know, that was the first I'd actually ever heard of the term. Mm. And then I Googled some of the people that have written about this stuff. Rachel Botsman is the sort of big name in the field. And, uh, you know, since then it's become, you know, one of the kind of hot trends, but I mean, I wouldn't, encourage anyone to sort of think about like a trend or an abstraction and go like, I want to start a business in, you know, cryptocurrency or the sharing economy or yeah. internet of things, you know, ultimately try and actually understand what that is and think about whether there is a problem that is being solved by this business and there is value yeah. that is being created that is hard to replicate, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think actually sometimes people do approach it in that way. They just go, there's got to be like an Airbnb of, you know, chairs yeah. or something like that. And that kind of leads them up some strange and perverse alleys before they actually go, mm, you know what, there's actually not kind yeah. of much value being created here. But so in your shoes, were you approaching it that way? And therefore you're giving yourself that advice now retroactively? Or were you just kind of like you fell in love with the team? What was it that made the the idea when you met them at Launch 48 make sense? Was How did you make sense of it? How was the timing right? How did you convince them of the value you could bring? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, um, it was my first tech startup. So I didn't want to do anything too zany, to be honest. Um, I saw a business um, with a clear business model, with revenues, um, you know, admittedly fairly small revenues, but, you know, it was still making money. Mm. Um, and for me, that was, you know, a pretty good proof point that this thing wasn't going to fall on its ass in two weeks' time. Um, so, I mean, it, it made a lot of sense rationally. Like there was what is now called kind of idling capacity by mm -hmm. people who read lots about the sharing economy and you know, write about the sharing economy. Um, but, it, you know, it made a ton of sense to me. Um, so it kind of it felt like a de-risked thing, really.
Mm. Okay, so what was the first conversations after Launch 48 like? Did you, um, what was your original role? And then how did, how did that role grow within the organization? Sure. So the founder of the company, um, a guy called Anthony, uh, was looking really for a COO. And I had a few offers at that time, but it felt like, you know, how bad could this be? This is a, a C-level role in a startup. Um, at that point, the business um, had you know, one major investor in the form of BMW. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of my first step into startups. And, you know, even if this isn't the biggest business ever, um, if I joined a COO, the team was still tiny, like, you know, 2.5 people, you know, there's going to be some, some kind of decent upside. Mm. Um, so that was, was kind your of title COO at hire. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, what, where do you stand on, would you have like now with what you know, would you have hired yourself with that title? Like knowing what you know about hiring today, do you think that that title was way too ambitious for what was available there? Should you have hired yourself under a more um, uh, flexible title, if you will? I mean, interesting question. I, I mean, I think I would have done because, to be honest, that was one of the reasons why I was attracted to the role. Um, you know, I could have done like a senior operations role or something mm-hmm. like that in kind of bigger, more established companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that was a key reason why why I took this offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt it would just be a great way to start my trajectory into tech. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm quite a big fan of, um, you know, if you see potential in someone, you see the fire in their eyes, you mm-hmm. think that someone can really fly in this role. Um, mm-hmm. Believing in people mm-hmm. um, and seeing um, how these people can rise to the challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Vinod Kozler is a big fan of this as well. Like not being mean with job titles, like mm-hmm. working in a startup is rough, right? You're mm-hmm. getting paid generally like a fairly shitty amount. Mm-hmm. You're working insanely hard. Um, sure, there's great things. But one of those great things is also that you get to have a cool job title. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can be kind of sniffy about this. But at the end of the day, job titles matter. You know, how people perceive themselves and how people think about other people's how other people perceive them, that, that matters. And... If you can really get a lot of more, you know, kind of buy-in and performance and drive and passion out of someone because they have a title that they're deeply proud of, mm. you know, why not? Um, so, you know, it's absolutely the case that startups can get themselves in trouble mm-hmm. by over-promoting people. Um, but, you know, I've tended to believe that a, a day is a long time in startups. Six months is an eternity in startups. And if by empowering people with job titles that they're really proud of, that they strive to grow into, you can get great performance out of them for six months. Like that's really important. That mm. might be all you need to move the company onto the next stage. Mm. I think that, I think that's a valid, and, you know, on the internet, there's quite a bit of debate on that subject. Uh, my personal experience has been that um, unless the candidate is really, really strong, um, there are cases where you might need to hire somebody above that person as the organization scales. And then that creates a little bit of an issue. And I think it maybe maybe the the debate is worth worth worthwhile having at the C level versus the sort of operational level versus yeah. other levels, and how you might make a decision to either give an aspirational title versus giving a functional title where that person can graduate into a more aspirational title, or whether they stay there and you need to hire somebody above them. So I think that that's kind of like the debate, and I, and I, my personal experience, I've seen it go wrong where like you give somebody too much authority, and then they en- end up pissing off the rest of the team because they start taking on way more responsibility than they should have for where they are, or they're hard to replace or hire somebody above them. So it's an interesting take yeah, on that. I mean, I think it's really, I think it's really bullshit to give someone an aggressive job title when you hire them. Yeah. 
Um, and you're totally right. You can definitely get yourself into trouble by over-promoting people. There's no yeah. question about that. Um, what I'm saying is more not give people outlandish, unachievable things for which there is a massive gulf between what they can do and what they will live up to, mm. but just erring on the side of optimism, erring yeah. on the side of belief that they can live up to that role. Yeah. Um, you know, a really good candidate who doesn't succeed in that role, yeah. um, you know, if they're not a good candidate, they probably shouldn't be in the business. But yeah. if they're really, really good such that they're the right height anyway, they should probably understand that the person that might ultimately be brought in above them is going to be an amazing mentor for that person. Yeah. Um, but you know that you know as as with all these things, like that, that is a big risk. Yeah, it's a big risk. And, and you said the word belief, and and one of the things that we were talking about earlier was this idea of having to believe in in, in your employees, but also inspire them and to scale. And one of the things I want to revisit is the size of the organization when you left the CEO versus the 2.5 when you started, how big was it when you left? So we were around, so when I became CEO, it was actually two people. Yeah. Um, the first year as COO was really just stabilizing the business. Um, and then uh, we were, yeah, me and the founder um, of Park My House yeah. um, when I became CEO. Um, when I left, we were about 40-ish people or something like that. 40-ish people. Yeah, 30, so- 37, I think. So maybe this is like overly simplifying things, but if you had to say like the, the top three lessons of taking a company from, you know, two people to 40 people, the, the top three things that you're like, if you could go back to Alex of 2000 and, you know, 12, 13, 14, whatever, um, what would you have said? You know what? I'm going to spare you a lot of pain and suffering. Just think about these three things. Mm, that is a that is a, that's kind of a tough question. Um, you know, I can talk about like this. The certain th- I guess I would say to Alex, like, here are some things that you should look for, mm-hmm. and if the people you're meeting don't have these things, then they're not right. So you know, for me, um, a passion it is an absolutely fundamental thing, um, and I see a lot of companies hire people who are great on paper, they have some very good functional experience, of course that is crucial, but they do not have the belief in in the business, um, which is really, really toxic because what that means is that they're good enough to stay within the business and do their job to a decent ability, but they're not passionate enough to actually add culturally to the business mm-hmm. to increase the sense of vision and purpose within an organization. And you, that can become kind of cancerous. Did you Did you have a hire where you noticed that there was no passion or belief? Yeah, of course. Like, you know, I interviewed, I don't know, like hundreds of people. Um, and of but course, within the, organization, every within the organization, was there somebody that like within six months, you were like, you know, hmm, this person really isn't. Absolutely. You know, um, I got hires wrong, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, the- How would you spot that? Like if you were giving the founder feedback and they were like, look, man, I have this, this guy. I'm not really not sure what's going on. What are the signals that you have developed as a sort of red flag for actually the problem stems from the fact that this employee just doesn't truly believe in what you're doing or doesn't have passion? Is there something that you, you have as a red flag? So, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to kind of quantify, but I think it's almost an instinctual thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, I listened once to, um, Alithia Navarro mm-hmm. from Skimlings talking about hiring and she articulated something that I do much, much better than I did, than I probably ever could. And she said that when she's hiring, um, she looks for fire in the eyes and, that I think, you know, is what I've also always looked for, tried to look for. Um, and sometimes you see that fire just going out in people. Um, it's not as simplistic as saying people are leaving early. 
but you just you ultimately have to be a good reader of body language and a、mm. good、uh, you have to be very empathetic, I think, to be a good CEO. And sometimes you see that that person is you know does not have that that drive, does not have that same level of excitement. I mean, and of course, there can be obvious things. There can be, you know, people coming late for work, people obviously coming in like hungover, people not listening, people being distracted, people not contributing ideas. Like, there's a whole other kind of layer of sort of symptomatic things as well. Yeah. So, on your list of top three, your first one was passion. What was the next one? I think people have who have failed are valuable as well.、Um, people who have failed.、Um, Can understand how challenging things are.、Um, they are, they often have a sort of a hunger to succeed,、um, and that's I would say it's kind of a subset of I mean, it's related at least to passion.、Um, you know, for me, I guess that relates to sort of my failure to really excel and you know shoot up the ranks in these law firms and consultancies where I wasn't really suited.、Um, and I think the best people、um, to hire often have that to them.、Um, I would say also,、um, you know, what I look for、um, is what I call experience in a in a world class environment or in a high performance environment. I'm, you know, some people, to be honest, would, would think I'm really elitist when I hire, but I really want to see on someone's CV that they have spent time in a high performance environment. Now, that might not be them having gone to Harvard, but it might be them having worked at a top investment bank, or them having done an internship at NASA、um, or the Bank of England. Or number ten, or some environment where they can be surrounded by the very best people,、um, and they can really see what excellence is. And I feel that often through no fault of their own, people that haven't spent time in that environment just have a different perception of what excellence is within an organisation.、Mm. Okay, now on to the third piece of advice you'd give yourself. I think that would be to look for people who are what I call startup hardened. So. A startup's a really specific environment. It's a very tough environment.、Um, it's you know kind of a full contact, high energy. You need to be working hard, but also thinking very hard、um, as well.、Um, and I think people who have spent some time in a startup, they understand that.、Um, they know what they're getting into,、um, and they're much more likely to succeed than if it's their kind of first time out. It's kind of like you know. I, I think the war metaphor is sort of massively overused, but I can't resist it in this case. Like it's kind of can be at times like being in a bit of a war zone, right?、Mm. And that troop who has never been deployed to a war zone before is at a massive disadvantage to even the one that spent, you know, a couple of weeks in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, or you know, in like a, a brittle, in you know, the Balkans or some intense. Difficult environment,、mm. um, and I so you know I, I really look for that. Ideally, someone has spent some time in a really high quality、um, uh, venture backed business. Ideally, you know, tier one or very high quality investors.、Um, if not, they've spent some time in a similar sort of startup environment.、Mm. Excellent. Well, those are all great, great、uh, things to look out for, and also to consider as part of scaling a company.、Um, but now let's move on to things that you've done.、Uh, one of the things that you were mentioning earlier. To make sure that you could scale with the company and the forty employees was memorizing people's names. Maybe you can walk us through other tips and and how you do that, but and the importance of that. But also other things that you you have developed as a leader、uh, skills in order to manage a company of that size. I think every you know every CEO is different, and there's no one size fits all approach to being a CEO.、Um, I think if 
anything it's true is true, it's that you need to find the right kind of CEO that you can become. Um, and that means fundamentally staying authentic to, to you as a person. Like people are different, therefore CEOs should be different. And there are all kinds of you know, very, very successful CEOs. The sort of CEO that I've always aspired to be is therefore rooted in my personality. Yeah. And for me, that is about being um, empathetic, collaborative, and bottom-up. One way I think I've been able to get a lot out of people is by not pretending to care, but genuinely deeply caring about the people that um, I hired and, and was employing. Like, these are people that are spending significant chunks of their working lives, um, of their waking moments with you, with the team. And you absolutely owe those people to make their lives as fulfilling and meaningful mm. as possible, to make their work environment as pleasant as possible, to make their colleagues as friendly and inspiring as possible. Mm. Um, to make sure that their anxieties are responded to and dealt with promptly, all these kinds of things. Um, and I think that people repay that. If, if people feel that they are cared about, they care for the other people in that organization, they care about the future of that organization. And people, again, are very, very different. So actually understanding how people's concerns differ and how to engage with very different types of people um, and of course, like, you know, we, we see recurrent types, you see engineers being very different from, I don't know, a social media manager, mm -hmm. but you know, beneath that, there's stereotyping that you, know, you still see, you know, further layers of like mm -hmm. profound difference between people working out how to relate to all these different people is important. And I guess I found that, you know, I did have a use for the English degree after all, because you know, this interest in storytelling and this ability to tell stories, I think you know, proved of some value, um, when I was running a company because, at the end of the day, stories are comforting and stories are essential. Mm. And you, as Carlos at Seacamp, you, know, you need to know a story about what Seacamp is going to be and become and how you fit into that story. Mm -hmm. And everyone in your team um, has their own stories. And sometimes they need help with those stories or sometimes they need reassurance that those stories are right or sometimes they need to be told new stories. Mm. And I think that is a really important part of making sure that everyone in a team understands their place within that team and the value of staying within that team and the value of that team and organization as a whole. Mm. No, it's very powerful. Now, I want to go to your book because in it you probably summarize a lot of the, the things that we just talked about, but also a lot of things that you've learned about uh, Just Park and the sharing economy that uh, kind of blossomed, uh, as you said, in recent years. Maybe uh, walk us through uh, sort of the, the genesis of it and kind of the, the key points and um, any any sort of tidbits that you think uh, would be of value for, for the audience? Sure. Uh, quite, a, quite a big question there. So I'll start with just the genesis of the book. Yeah. I got a LinkedIn message one day from an editor at Macmillan and she said, hey, I noticed there's all this media coverage of the sharing economy, but there doesn't seem to be a good and up-to-date book on the sharing economy. Um, any chance we could just grab lunch would be kind of just interested in kind of learning more about this area and getting your advice on who might be a good person to write this book. So I was like, uh, okay, um, fine. So we arranged to have lunch. And then at the end of this lunch, she dropped this bombshell on me and said, actually, Alex, I think you should write this book. 
Um, she'd kind of been Googling me and she'd seen that I'd written a novel and she'd seen that I was obviously running a sharing economy company. I mean, probably the biggest sharing economy in the UK by, you know, by user numbers. Um, and I was like, are you serious? I don't even have time to write a blog, let alone a book. Like, mm. I really don't think so. I mean, I would love to. I'm very flattered. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't think that's going to work. Who else is on your list? And then she said, well, actually, just you. I was like, well, that's a pretty shitty list. Mm. Um, what do you mean, just me? It's like, yeah, just you. If you don't write this book, maybe no one is going to write mm. this book. It's like, oh, man, don't do this to me. Um, so I said feeling that it was a kind of professional thing to say, look, let me go away and discuss this with the board and that kind of thing. And, you know, I went away and, um, you know, had a think and I, you know, did talk about this idea. Um, and everyone was like, yeah, just do it. So uh, I agreed to write the book and it came out uh, last year, as I say, from Macmillan. And um, for me, it was actually really awesome and I think really beneficial um, to my day-to-day -day work because you know, no one teaches you how to be a CEO. There's no CEO you know, handbook. Um, you have to kind of work things out on the fly. And one of the great ways of working things out is by talking to other CEOs um, who've solved some of the same problems and you know, dealt with some of the same challenges. And so one of the chapters in this book is a chapter called Founders. And I basically just went around and I met up with founders of the biggest sharing economy companies and I got to ask them stuff that I frankly wanted to know, um, kind of selfishly. Um, but I also thought that this stuff would be really interesting for other people to hear. So I went and I met the, you know, the founders of Zipcar and Airbnb and Blah Blah Car and all these kinds of businesses. And I strung together all their stories in, a chap in, a, in one chapter. And it kind of follows the chronology of starting a business. So it starts with a guy called Shelby Clark who started a business called Choro, um, used to be called Relay Rides. Um, it's probably the world's largest peer-to-peer -peer car sharing service. So it's basically borrowing your neighbor's cars. And the lesson that Shelby imparts is how to come up with an idea, because he was this kind of founder in search of an idea. And then it moves through kind of chronolo chronologically all these different ideas, like you know how to raise money, um, how to find a big market. And then the final idea is um, Nicolas Brusson, um, the COO of Blah Blah Car, who talks about how to scale internationally. Yeah. And what were the key conclusions? Obviously, you go through these narratives of, of the different founders, but is this, is this something that's more of an illustrative book uh, about the nature of the sharing economy, or is there some takeaway that you want the reader to, to walk away with? So I think it's a bit of both. So first and foremost, it's an entrepreneur's view on the sharing economy. And that's a really specific view. Most of the stuff that's been written about the sharing economy has been written by consultants, mm -hmm. by academics, and I mean, their views are extremely important, but just very different. Um, and I wanted to show the reader what it was like to be, I guess, in my shoes. Mm -hmm. So I would describe, you know, going to number 10 and talking about um, barriers in regulation that were holding back Just Park. Now, I would describe what it's like to go into the boardroom at Sequoia Capital and pitch your business to them. You know, all these kinds of things that are just very distinctive to, mm. to founders and entrepreneurs. Um, but, you know, there's also, uh, there was also this real desire on my part to sort of see beneath the hype. Mm. So I say in the first chapter, um, I want to work out whether this is um, hot stuff or hot air. Mm. And that was, you know, absolutely the case. 
you know, reading all about it, um, you had on one side people who were saying, this is the greatest thing ever, this is the panacea for everything, this is going to create happy, homogenous, fulfilled societies, millions of entrepreneurs, everyone's going to get richer, and we're not going to be alienated, and we're going to use less resources, and the environment's going to be wonderful, and there's going to be trees and orchids everywhere, and butterflies. Like, that was definitely a narrative, mm -hmm. but then at the same time, there are people saying, this is putting millions of people out of work. Um, this is a disruption that is only making you know, a handful of people, mostly in Silicon Valley, super rich. Mm. And this is you know, PR, this is a con, this is a freaking sham. Mm. And so you had these two very, you know, very diametrically opposed narratives. And I wanted to kind of, I guess, bury into, bury into this and sort of see what the reality was. And I conclude, of course, you should all you know, go, go get the book and mm. get more about it. But you know, I conclude that it's 80% good and 20% bad mm. um, and I kind of pick apart what it means for all these different stakeholders and that's the way that the book is structured yeah. so there is a chapter as I mentioned called founders which is about entrepreneurs telling their stories there's a chapter called thinkers mm. which is about the kind of intellectual um, historical context to this yeah. chapter called governments about regulators there's a chapter called investors about the investment community and why they're investing and I really sort of build up this 360 degree view of, of what it is um, can, can I ask you a controversial question on that, though? Sure. Uh, recently, um, Uber pulled out of Austin, uh, Texas, and there's this whole uh, article about how people are going to Facebook groups to post uh, requests for rides. And I was also watching the story of Lyft yesterday at this uh, film, Disruptors, um, that was uh, premiering here in Europe. Um, yeah. And it talks about how the founders of Lyft were seeing all these cars that were empty and they were thinking in, in effect of a sharing economy business in, in the sense sharing your car with somebody else and then you get paid for it. But if you look at the way that Uber now operates and, and some of these car services operate, let's say in Austin where they have left, it resembles more of like people who have made a career out of the job. And as a consequence, you've moved away from that. And you hear about this same thing with Airbnb where people are potentially buying flats entirely by the let, if you will but buy to let via Airbnb versus buy to let in traditional senses. How much do you think that the economy, that 80-20 that you described, 80% good, 20% bad, yep. how much is that shifting towards maybe 50-50 or maybe even 60-40, whereby a lot of the, the, the future gains in the sharing economy is actually people taking bets on uh, car assets or flats or something like that? So I think that kind of, separate questions. So the first thing you're talking about is really the prof what I call the professionalization of the supply side. Mm. And that is when someone goes, okay, it's kind of good me making jewelry on my weekends and selling these nice necklaces on Etsy, but actually I can give up my job and I can hire a couple of people and I can sell necklaces on Etsy full time. And most of these marketplaces that reach real big, interesting scale are ones where there is a professionalization of the supply side. Mm. And that is generally, for the most part, a good thing because that is good for those individuals, that's good for that lady who's decided she's gonna sell necklaces full time. Um, it's good for the customers because she's now meeting the unmet demand that existed when she was only making these necklaces uh, part of the time on her weekends. Um, and it's also good, of course, for the company as well because that's raising standards on that marketplace because that professional seller is going to be better than a sort of part-time occasional seller. So I think generally that is a good thing. I think 
There's a separate question there um, about what I call the buy-to-share model. So this is people moving into assets that they can basically do a kind of yield arbitrage play with. So they mm. can say, actually, I can get whatever, you know, 4%, if you're lucky, um, on London residential if I'm renting it out full-time, 365 days a year to a tenant. But I can get a much more uh, aggressive yield if I basically flip people through it quickly on Airbnb. Mm. And you know, I would say com- more complex picture here, that is mostly a good thing. But in specific situations, if disproportionate amounts of housing stock moves over to that, then that's something that you know each city needs to look into. Um, you do have unique environments, and San Francisco is the most obvious example, where you have such a constrained amount of housing supply that there is a chance that you know the distortion of the market can change rents for people. Now, I think the impact is relatively small. I think the real driver here is actually a tech boom. Um, and the demographic change that you see as a result of that tech boom. But the reality is that housing is an immensely complex subject. And so every city needs to look at the housing stock and the specific, you know, questions in that environment and, you know, work out what the right thing to do is. Mm. Yeah, it is, it is a tricky, it is a tricky subject and, and one that I think we're, I think the evolution of the shared economy hasn't, um, hasn't ended. I mean, I think that you, we have some amazing companies that represent transport and housing and a- other assets. But for sure, I think there's still probably a lot more to happen there. If you had to take a guess where the areas of innovation that are still up for grabs in the sharing economy, um, what, what would you say they are? What would you, if you had to take a punt, um, maybe as an investor or just as a, a sort of science fiction writer, where would you say that well, we haven't quite nailed it in the sharing economy? I think that you know, hitherto the sharing economy has been this kind of consumer-facing phenomenon. So it's been consumers getting a car, consumers getting a place to stay on holiday. Um, and what I think we'll see much more of in the future is businesses tapping into uh, similar marketplaces. So, for example, there is a business in the U.S. called Cohilo, and what they do is they move hospital infrastructure between uh, you know, different hospitals. So one hospital has a dialysis machine that is not being used, rather than that dialysis machine taking up storage space, they just move it to a different hospital, they rent it out, where, of course, you know, it does good and it you know, helps people you know, stay alive. Um, so we'll see, I think, that you know, similar phenomena in various different sectors um, where you have hard machinery, valuable things being moved around between businesses. Another quite fun example is this company called Machinery Link. Mm. And what they do is move combine harvesters around. Mm. Combine harvesters, what a crazy thing, right? Is that part of the sharing economy? Yeah, Mm. absolutely. So um, as you'll know, know, the US is, North America is such a vast continent that harvests happen at different times. Mm. So the harvest begins in Texas and it slowly moves its way up the continent and ends up in uh, finishing in the Pacific Northwest. So people need to actually harvest their crops at different times. And so what that creates is the opportunity to move these incredibly expensive machines around the country or to neighboring areas, rather than for every single farm to maintain and buy and insure these you know, extremely expensive vehicles. Excellent. I mean, that's, that's a very good and inspiring note to end on, um, is the idea that there's still so much more that we could tap into in terms of assets that we're not using, uh, enterprise health services, uh, agri agri services so thanks for that thanks for sharing your thoughts and for those of you um, that are interested in getting alex's book i will put the link on the podcast notes 
And until next time, guys, see you later. Bye. This section as well. Yeah. So as we were concluding, Alex said that one of the questions he loves being asked is, what was the one piece of advice you'd give to a founder? And uh, he started to tell me, actually, I said, you know what? We have to put this on tape. So off you go, Alex. What is the one piece <laughs> of advice you would give? Okay. I actually said I was surprised that you didn't ask me that question. Oh, okay. So I'm going to answer it anyhow. So I've got a kind of new one. Um, I think the typical advice that people get is kind of, just do it, you know, just start, go for it. Um, and I think that that can't always, you know, it's not always that helpful because the people that need that advice just are afraid. And just being told to do something doesn't really address the source of fear. If you're scared of heights, being told, hey, just jump off the building, just get up there on the 54th floor, just do that bungee jump, isn't actually that constructive. So I think for people that are aspiring entrepreneurs but worried about taking that leap, I think you need to you know, change the optics and reconceive how you think of starting a business. Starting a business is huge. It can feel like a marriage. Mm. It's going to last for, you know, years, hopefully decades, you know, incredibly large, num large number of years. Um, you're going to pour your heart and soul into it. Um, you might hopefully build something absolutely amazing and wonderful and life-changing, but it might fail. Mm. And for people that are afraid of taking that first step, I would say don't think of starting a business as a marriage think of starting a business as dating. You're just trying something out. You haven't started a business, you're just messing around. Yeah. You're just testing stuff, you're just playing with stuff, you're just happening to uh, get on the phone with people, meet up with them, run a few tests on Facebook and Google, read a few reports, and so on and so forth. Um, and actually, I'm sure you've heard before that a lot of the best businesses are started by accident because mm. actually they're started by dating they're not yeah. started by marriage and i think that's a really really easy way to take the pressure off yourself you are not starting a business you're just playing around you're just dating you're dating a business you're dating a business Excellent. well on that note thanks guys and until next time bye <laughs>